Most of us are undoubtedly familiar to some extent with stories of wannabe published authors getting rejected with their initial manuscripts or those that have a great idea for a movie pitching it only to face rejection. In fact, that's more often the case that the initial first draft is rejected than those rare instances where the first draft is accepted as is and the book or the movie is, is produced from there. Maybe you've heard of, of chicken soup for the soul, and I, I don't mention that to, to recommend it, but simply because it's probably a familiar title. Had the author stopped at 143 submissions, the book never would have been published because it took 144 times for that to be published, and then, of course, was expanded into a series and I think even a, a cookbook at some point. And all of the authors, if you are an avid reader who enjoys fiction, if you like Stephen King, um, if you like any number of, of suspense or mystery novels, even Dr. Seuss, if I can still mention that one, those authors faced multiple rejections before their first book was ever published. If you've ever seen the movie The Help, that actually, before it was ever produced into a blockbuster movie, was, was a book that was rejected 60 times until it was finally printed. And movies like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, the same thing. Those did not fly over well initially in Hollywood until multiple submissions and, and people had looked at those scripts. So those cases of rejection we're familiar with. And yet, you don't have to be a, a wannabe published author or somebody who has a great pitch or idea for a movie to face rejection because it's something that all of us are familiar with. We've experienced multiple rejection on multiple fronts, multiple times throughout our lives. Whether it's rejection in the face of, of relationships, maybe sometimes even within our own family. Rejection at, at work, rejection in school, rejection in athletics. Rejection sometimes, sadly, we have to admit, even from those in, in church. We are not strangers to rejection. And as common as it might be, that doesn't take away the, the sting of rejection. Rejection can be crushing. So we can relate to a parable that Jesus told us from our gospel this morning that deals with that very topic of rejection. As Jesus was addressing his, his enemies, his listeners, he told this parable of three individuals, three servants, one by one, who were sent to uh, the tenants and they were rejected. And after those three servants were rejected, then the landowner of the vineyard sends his own son, who is rejected to a much more serious degree, even put outside the vineyard and killed. And then the last example of rejection in that parable really is then that the tables being turned when the vineyard owner actually rejects his tenants. Rejection is a popular theme in that parable. And, and Jesus' know-it-all enemies, his listeners, knew very well the point of the parable. It was clear, and any student of the Bible, if you are familiar with Scripture, this is not a difficult parable to interpret. It is quite clear. But Luke indicates that, that those to whom Jesus was speaking knew full well what the application of the parable was 
because Luke, is, Luke gives us that description in verse 19 of their reaction. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. We too, without too much effort, know the significance of the parable. Of course, God is the one who owns the vineyard, and each of those servants that are sent to the vineyard uh, to, to see if any fruit had been produced represent the number of prophets that God sent to his people Israel throughout the Old Testament, calling them to turn away from their hearts, their eyes, away from idolatry and immorality and back to the Lord. And in instances, instance after instance throughout the Old Testament, those servants, those prophets were rejected. And still, the landowner chose to send his son. Ironic as it was the son himself who was the one speaking the parable to Jesus' enemies. So we know the clear indicator and implications of this parable. It's, it's obvious to us. It doesn't take a lot of discernment to know what Jesus was talking about. And yet, just to make sure, in case that the point was not clear to them, he quoted Psalm 118, which we've heard as well. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they knew full well that Jesus was condemning them for their rejection. But who was it really, as you reflect on this parable, who was rejected? Now, the obvious application is Jesus, who brings in Psalm 118 and applies it to himself, being the Son. And yet, as you revisit the parable, remember that it's, it's God the Father who owns the vineyard. He's the one that has entrusted it to others to take care of it. The servants that are sent, the prophets, were sent from God himself. Even the Son belonged to God the Father who sent him. So who was it ultimately that was facing rejection in this parable? It was the Lord. It was God. And nobody throughout history has ever faced rejection more than the Lord God. Go all the way back to, to the beginning. Having just finished up his flawless creation, Adam and Eve were the first to reject him, choosing to, to give in to Satan's deception rather than to, to gratefully show their appreciation by obediently keeping the Lord's command not to eat from the fruit. Fast forward to another rather familiar account in the Old Testament of Noah and the flood. When you have one family that was rescued despite an entire world that had rejected God and shown it in its life of wickedness, and then move forward after God reestablished his people and they were in Egypt. He delivered them once again out of Egypt. And yet that whole exodus and that whole journey through the wilderness and their entrance into the land flowing with milk and honey was marked by rejection after rejection of, of God's representatives, Moses and his leaders, and really God himself. And what happened once God established his people in this promised land? He raised up kings. And the track record of those kings was to reject the very one who established their authority again 
And again, and it was to those kings, especially during that time, that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, who, as the parable indicated, were rejected again and again and again. And then, of course, you have the event that we will focus on very acutely next week during Holy Week, the rejection of the Son himself, our Savior. God is no stranger to rejection. Thank goodness that we are now in the New Testament era then, where we can finally put all of that rejection that God had to deal with in the past, right? A a past that's riddled with rejection because you know that this parable was very clearly addressed against the Jewish people, unbelievers who had rejected him. And that doesn't apply to us, so surely God must be grateful that, that you and me, believers after all, we're not unbelievers, right? That we have blazed a new path of rejoicing instead of rejection. Question. Do you have to be an unbeliever to reject the Lord? Can only unbelievers reject the Lord? I can't see into your heart, but I'm guessing that your heart has already turned you in. It's already betrayed you to answer that question very clearly. Of course you don't have to be an unbeliever to reject the Lord. We are experts at it. Though we might like to to differentiate ourselves, to distinguish ourselves from the unbelieving Jews who rejected uh, Jesus and his promise of salvation, the fact of the matter is that, that we too are just as adept at rejecting Jesus. I mean, when you think about it, when we choose one thing, if we have multiple options, when we choose one option, what are we doing but rejecting the other one? So practically speaking, let's, let's take a, a scenario that applies to every one of us. Every one of us woke up this morning and, and every Sunday morning you wake up, you are faced with options, with choices. You can do myriad things with your Sunday morning. Or you can choose the option of of gathering in God's house around his word to be fed and nourished in your faith. So when we choose any one of those other options, what are we also then rejecting? Or better, who are we rejecting, if not the Lord? When you have a spare moment, when you have time in those pockets of your day, if they aren't deliberate and planned, and you have the option of scrolling social media, or opening God's Word for a little bit of quiet meditation, and you leave God's Word closed, you've made a choice, but in that choice, what or whom have you also rejected? When we are silent in the face of of what is clearly sin, and we say nothing, maybe to keep the peace, or we don't want it to be awkward, instead of lovingly, patiently, maybe sometimes firmly pointing out that sin. We've made a choice, but in that choice we have also rejected something else or someone else. We are no strangers to rejection. Believers can and do reject Jesus quite frequently, don't we? And do you think that even if they are subtle, even if they are small, that, that those little moments of rejection over time don't make a difference at all because they're so small, because they're so insignificant? We'll go back to the parable. 
Do you suppose that it was easy the first time the, the tenants made that decision to beat down the servant sent to them? I would imagine that was probably a difficult choice at first, but I'm guessing that the second servant that was sent and the third servant that was sent, it got a little bit easier, didn't it, after making that first choice? And then, in fact, when you consider the son who was sent to them, at that point, all prudence was out the window. Though the parable says that they discussed it, I don't think anybody spoke up in that discussion and said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should not murder the vineyard's son. No, at that point, it was pure justification in their own minds that they were so far removed from any morality of, of right or wrong. It was justified that they would murder the son so that they could come by the entitlement and greed. They could feed that through this course of action. Those little choices of rejecting the Lord over time make a difference. As you stand in, in front of a door, it's that first choice that just pushes the door open, maybe a crack. And then once you can see a, a crack, then you're a little more curious and it's easier to push it a little further. And then further, all the way open. And then once that door is open, well, it's, it's kind of natural to walk through that door. In fact, once you're through that door, it's as natural to be in that door as it is on the other side. And that's how it is with something like our approach to gathering for worship. One Sunday might be a big choice, but one Sunday rather easily turns into two, and then two is not such a big step to three. And then it's actually more normal not to gather in God's house for worship than it is to be here. Don't think that those little choices of rejecting the Lord over time don't make a difference. And that's not the only reason that they impact us. It's not just that things get easier over time, but consider this as well. Rejection is not just rejection. When we choose to reject the Lord in some fashion or another, we aren't just rejecting, we're also replacing because there is a vacuum there with whatever choice it is that has not gone or taken us down the path that would feed our faith, that would give us an opportunity for the Spirit to do His work. Something else is going to fill that vacuum and influence us. So it isn't just neutral ground. When we choose not to go the path of the Spirit, we are allowing then something that is by definition unspiritual to influence us. And you know as well as I do who is prowling around waiting for a chance, an opportunity to pounce and fill that vacuum. You know that the devil is not going to let those opportunities pass him by to allow something or people in the world to, to influence you, to cement uh, ungodly, to cement worldly views. Not always wicked and evil, but if not a choice that rejects the Lord, then it's something that opens us up to other influence. And what finally is the, the worst possible scenario that could happen with those little choices over time to reject the Lord that then also open us up to other influence that is not from God Himself? Shudder the thought of those words of the conclusion of the parable applying to us. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. No, we aren't the unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus. But do you think there's a reason that Jesus tells you and me this parable? 
Because you and I have no right at all to Christ and his church. And if we think little of it to reject or abuse or ignore the gifts that he has given to us, do you think that if he took it away from the very chosen people that he had given to in the Old Testament from the beginning of time and gave it to the Gentiles, do you think that he cannot take it away from you and from me as well? Absolutely. So the warning for us is that quote from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do not reject the cornerstone. And yet, friends, as easily as we reject the Lord, as natural as that is for us, as frequent as that is for us, do not be shocked by that. Rather be shocked at how the landowner responds to you and me, those tenants who reject him again and again. Be shocked that God himself has not rejected those who have rejected him. In fact, the irony, of course, of the parable that Jesus was talking to these people who, who thought they knew it all, the, those that would have claimed a stake a, a claim to their Jewish heritage, was that God still had sent them the Savior. That God didn't say, I'll wait till you have your act together or till you're really sorry or repentant and then maybe I'll follow through with my plan of salvation. He chose to send Jesus anyway. And he chose to send Jesus into a world that he knew had rejected him. He did not send Jesus because we were warm and fuzzy toward him or we were looking forward to accepting him. He sent his son into a world that he knew had a history, a pattern repeatedly of only rejecting him. And then, and then the father rejected his son. Knowingly. So that he wouldn't have to reject you and me. The father turned his grace turned his favor away from his son in his moment of need as he was bearing the full brunt, the weight, the burden, the guilt, uh, an eternity of suffering in hell for our sins of rejection. And the father rejected him in that moment so that the father would not have to reject you and me. Next week is the opportunity that we have to reflect on really that, that rejection. That the father didn't send his son into the world hoping that he would live or might make it, but knowing full well that he would die and that he had to reject him. And as we embark on that journey next week, starting with Palm Sunday, let us process with Jesus into Jerusalem. Let us step into the upper room where he gives to us his very body and blood to assure us that he has not rejected us. And let us follow him to the cross where we see in very clear, vivid imagery what it looks like for the father to reject his son and walk away from that, that, that cross with a confidence of knowing that that wasn't the end of the story. being confident that because of what the Son did on that cross and because the Father rejected Him 
instead of you and me. That sin, that death, that Satan himself and all the punishment of hell has been crushed along with the Father's rejection. May we find a new appreciation next week as we gather during those special services to see the Savior rejected by the Father so that we could walk away with the assurance that he will never reject us. Amen.